will. And, we, and, and so the, the things about the earth that we're in now, they're temporary and we need to think of them that way. They're details. And God, you know, when we hear the description of the throne in the new heavens and new earth, there's no red, white, and blue, you know, flags kind of hanging off of it. It's actually beyond anything we can experience or imagine. And it's helpful for us to keep that in mind, even as we celebrate our nation, which unites us, protects us from so many of the ravages of wickedness of mankind. God protects us through the concept of nations and states and, and governments. As we think about these details, it's important to keep them details because our citizenship is in heaven. And that's, again, uh, verse 20. For our citizenship literally actually exists in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. And how do you know it's going to happen? Because it'll be by the exertion, he says in verse 21 of Philippians 3, by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. So it's secure because it's power. And we talked last hour, I closed. I don't know if you heard it. We closed on all the things we're spending money on as a people to give us security, whether it's healthcare, military, law enforcement, all the right things, all the things that you need. The, the uh, home alarm industry, all this billions and trillions of dollars that we're spending as a people to basically protect us from loss. But there is no security like who by the exertion of the power that Jesus has even to subject all things to himself. And that's a totally different way of thinking about life than we tend to think because we can't see Jesus. The way you see him is you look in his word. Don't worry. Absent from the body and present with the Lord is coming soon enough on God's timing and his timing alone. And you need to make ready for that day. As Paul says, we're eagerly waiting for his son whether we are, whether we die and spend some time with him absent from the body until our resurrection or whether we are part of that generation that is translated and the dead in Christ rise first. And then we who are alive and remain are caught up together to meet the Lord in the clouds. And so will we ever be with the Lord. However that works, that's the transformation of this body, this humble body, this lowly body. Uh, Paul says, we just quoted Philippians 2, being found in the form of a slave. This body will be transformed into this glorious body that 1 Corinthians 15 says inherits eternity. And so that's the context for what follows in the great command of verse 1. Since Paul didn't put a paragraph, we shouldn't either. He didn't break the, break the chapter. He didn't say, okay, and I'm going to write chapter 4. He just said, therefore, hosta, therefore, brethren. My beloved brethren and earnestly desired. And you would say in good English, my, my beloved and earnestly desired brethren. But this is the Greek order. Therefore, my beloved and earnestly desired brethren. That includes sisterin. And Paul's thought he's not keeping the ladies out by just saying brethren. Understand, read the Bible like it said. We don't need to come up with new translations to say brothers and sisters. That's a paraphrase. He just says brethren, but it means everybody. It means the family. You have to understand that. My joy and crown. Do you think of each other as your joy and your reward in the coming evaluation? Do you think of each other that way? Paul thinks of these Philippians. He thinks of the Thessalonians this way too. He thinks of them as the reason for his boasting at the coming of Jesus. When Jesus comes and says, and, and, and brings us up and we catch this, this judgment seat of Christ event, the work that Paul did is the people that grew in the word and got on the work themselves. And so that's his boast. It's on mission all through the whole Christian life. Ever since Jesus said, here's the new deal. Here's the mission. This is what we're about. And so there his joy and his crown in this way, stand fast in the Lord beloved in this way that I've just told you that you focus on your eternal citizenship and the coming resurrection so you're looking out and forward at what's coming, expecting Jesus instead of looking down at the suffering, fixating on the details. Just one more podcast to make me really despair about the horrible circumstances we're in as a people. You need to pay attention to the news. You need to know what you need to do 
for your family, for yourself. You need, we, we have to deal with the details, just like watch the fuel gauge on your car and fill it up. You need to get the oil changed. These are details, but the mission is not a detail. It's the mission that all the details fit up under. And so the, the, the attitudinal, that's an adjective, the attitudinal basis for the Christian life is my citizenship is in heaven and my resurrection is secure because it's coming from Jesus who's got power to do it. That's the Christian attitude. It solves everything. It dissolves all of the lesser concerns and stabilizes me so that I can stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Why is stand fast in red? Yeah, because Pastor Dave has adopted this convention over the last several months, putting the commands, the imperative statements in red. Are y'all with me on the commands of the New Testament? Is everybody with me on this? This is my favorite thing lately. Except for the last 20 years or something. Why? So when you summarize with theology, you can make correct statements, but miss the point. That's how summary works. America is a good country. Yeah. America is a good country. Can we, can we summarize? Missing a lot of data, a lot of details in that, right? Like how many things are being done by this good country in wickedness constantly? I mean, the president-elect just said parents no longer have rights to train their children to be boys and girls. Did you hear it? Transgender rights against parental rights for little children, little eight-year-olds in the homes. This is a good country. Uh, well, wouldn't you put it that way? I mean, that's not good. I mean, we don't, right. See, it, you can summarize and miss some details that really matter. And more than apparently, okay, let's say that something like half the population is like, yeah, <laughs> good. And, <laughs> anyway, um, destructive to the children, destructive to the families, destructive to the fabric of the nation. Um, why I'm saying this, that the, the commands help you summarize what you're doing. They help you clear off all the other things and they help you focus. I'm the kind of person that will study the veins on the leaves of the trees when I'm supposed to be surveying the forest. I will study the microbes in the veins on the leaves of the trees. And I'll be like, well, look at all these veins of leaves of trees. We've got, to, we've got the whole forest to do. You know, there's plenty of work forever. And I'll just get lost. And then there will be a command, hey, wake up, get with, get with the work. And, and it clarifies, it, it helps me organize. Maybe you don't struggle with the, the sea of details. I feel like a little kid in the old um, ball pit, you know, the, the germ uh, thing that, at, at, at the playground, you know, that, 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 like, a, like an acre size one with a diving board. I feel like a little kid, like, you know, 12 feet deep and you just jump in and you're just, Ah, details, but the commands bring you back to what you're doing so you can actually get somewhere. We're under grace, not under law is a correct summary. The Bible states, but it doesn't mean we're lawless. It doesn't mean that we lack a law. We have the law of Christ and it's his commands. The summary command being love one another, just as I've loved you in John chapter 13. I love the commands because they help me organize my life. They give me a basis to evaluate my choices, my attitudes, my desires. And it's an objective basis that's outside of what I feel like, because that's the problem, what I feel like. I don't feel like doing what God said, but God said it. And now I'm being corrected. The commands are just so helpful. So I, put, so I highlight them when we can. We've got several commands in this passage. Now, how do we stand firm? We talked about a little bit, I think. No, we didn't get to that one. How do we stand firm? First of all, in verse chapter, chapter 3, verse 20, we recognize our citizenship, our identity in Christ, and association with the coming kingdom. We think in that Christian mindset. Second, we dwell on it. We recognize our citizenship and our destiny, and we dwell on it. And this is the principle of a personal sense of eternal destiny. A great couple of words that help summarize what we're talking about. 
It's a focus on the things above with a present sense of identity based on destiny. So I'm here and now, but my attention and my heart is looking at there and then what come, what's coming. Hebrews chapter 12, verse three, for the joy that's set before Jesus, he in the present can do the cross. He's looking to what's coming next. So he is able to deal with what's going on now. And so we don't love the now, we love what's coming, but we work through the now on the basis of what's coming. That's the Christian mindset. And that's why eschatology, that's why the future stuff, that's why it's important. And we don't say it'll all just pan out. We're careful with the text to see what the scriptures say, what God is saying through those apostles. So here's the theological summary question I like to, I like to ask. Do you know the three questions? Who is God? Who does he say I am? And what's he going to do with me? That'll solve all our problems. If you know the Bible's answers to those questions, it really does put you back in a frame of mind where you can stand firm in the Lord. And this is the, who am I? Who am I? What does God, who does God say I am? Well, I'm a citizen of heaven with a guaranteed resurrection body that, and a mission now, resurrection body coming, mission right now. So I know what my marching orders are. And that is so very helpful. Let's move on to an illustration of a malfunction right here in Philippians, these awesome believers that are so on mission, they're getting it right. Paul is encouraging them, encouraging them. You're doing well, do better. Let's hear about a failure among fellow workers in the gospel in the churches in Philippi, the believers among the Philippians who have a falling out. That is a horror to behold Philippians chapter four, verse two. It is the paragraph of the two ladies. Let me just say that whatever problem is happening between two believers can dissolve very nicely in the sun, in the glory of the coming resurrection of the truth of the gospel. Well, you know, he's like that. So by what standard, what, what standard do you think you're standing on? What basis do you, of, of, of purity do you stand on to look at someone else's shortcomings and say they're like that? Well, I mean, in the light of God's perfect righteousness, you know, that, that falls short. May well do. It might fall short. You might have found a speck in that guy's eye. And everyone around you is ducking every time you turn your head because the telephone pole is sticking out of your eye or the, the, the log is sticking out of your eye. And you, see, you turn over there to see someone else and five people had to duck. And the last guy didn't duck. He got knocked over by the plank sticking out of your eye. We need, to, we need to do a skit, illustrate that sometime. I've thought about how to do the skit. You need some sort of heavy, heavy masks, big masks, because to illustrate a log sticking out of someone's eye, well, that's dangerous and we've got a hazard involved. We have to mitigate the hazard. Anyway, um, but, but, you know, Matthew 7, you know, if you've got, why do you strain at the speck in your brother's eye when you have a log in your own eye? First, pull the log out of your own eye so that you'll be able to see to help your brother with a speck in his eye. See, the, the idea there is that we're sinners. Everybody's in the same playpen. We're all making the same mess. So we never stand from a position of I'm morally superior and that person isn't. What we do, though, is we think we're it. We think we're the standard and they don't meet my standard. Some, I, don't, I don't like the way that person smells or acts or whatever. Something doesn't quite pass my standard. And then I reject them. And that's... That's something we're being groomed and trained to avoid because we're all sinners. Everyone who's saved is a sinner saved by grace. We all need God's forgiveness every single day. And the Lord Jesus taught us that if we want God's fellowship forgiveness, we need to be ready to humble ourselves and extend it to others as needed. In other words, Jesus commanded us to love one another in John chapter 13. And love in 1 Corinthians 13 doesn't count a wrong suffered. So we need to work on our forgiveness muscles. And the analogy to the gym and your physical muscles, I'd say the forgiveness muscles are probably the biceps. They're the ones that show that you really got to work on, get them, you know, get them up there. So when, you, when you're wearing a t-shirt on, you know, or, or, or out at the, the beach, people notice, well, this guy goes to the gym. They're the, they're the showy things that are so very important and you use them all the time to do pretty much everything. You got to have forgiveness working. You need to really build 
that skill of forgiveness. Pastor Dave said forgiveness is the Christian biceps. It shows. It's, it's both utility and exemplary. You need it. And that's not, what, that's not happening in, in Philippi between these two awesome ladies that are on mission. They're maturing and mature believers. They're workers in the gospel. They're fellow workers with Paul. And there's a little Donnybrook between them because, well, something's happened and we don't know what. There's been a falling out. Let's talk about what it could be. You could have these ladies being um, uh, personality mismatches somehow where they just don't get each other the way they communicate. It's a miracle that we ever make friends really because of the uniqueness of our own makeup and how we process information and how we communicate information. It's complex. Again, I'm, I love it. Let's get into the complexity of communication because every one of you is different. And the way you perceive things is going to be a little bit different than the person next to you. It's just how we are. It's called being an individual person. That's how God made you. So it's a miracle of God that we ever get together and say, hey, uh, let, let's all do the same thing. That's called the mission and the commands. And they solidify us to be able to do the work because of these differences. And so you take the personality differences, the way your brain is wired, not necessarily a product of sin. You add the sin nature differences. And your, your sin is obvious to me, but my sin is not obvious to me. And my sin is obvious to you, but your sin is not obvious to you. And so we self-righteous on each other in our, blind, in our blindness about ourselves. I mean, that is little, that is preschool stuff. It really is the, the, you know, the, the remarkable lack of self-awareness of toddlers, isn't it? I see this from time to time in my own circumstance. He stole my thing. Didn't you steal it from him yesterday? Yes. So it's his thing. But he took it. Back. And, but, but the interesting thing is that the argument begins with total righteousness, total self-certainty that I'm right in my position. He took that. Well, but it's his. Oh, yeah. Just a blindness. Just, we're, the, they don't even mean to be willfully blind. It's just how we are. We don't see ourselves in our sinfulness, but we get real self-righteous about other people's sinfulness. And listen, and this, understand the Bible holds us, God holds us responsible to make judgments. We are responsible to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ, but we don't do it judgmentally, but we do have to make judgments. Read first Corinthians five. And we're responsible. And Jesus teaches you how to judge. You get the log out of your own eye so you can help your brother to see the speck in his eye. You're helping him. You're restoring someone. It's not, well, I'm making distinctions and you don't really measure up. You're in a category that is uh, not really approved. No, we're all in a disapproved category. We're all sinners. We all stink compared to God's perfect righteousness a lot. And God has forgiven us all a billion, so we need to forgive a hundred. That's the idea. That's the Christian ethic. And it's not happening between Uodia and Suntuke, and that's the Greek, how these ladies' mamas called them. I encourage Uodia. The girl's name is Uodia. I bet that was pretty the way her mom and dad said it. Uodia, Uodia, Uodia. Probably something fast like that. We read it Uodia. Oh, Uodia. And I encourage, this is going to be harder for you, S-U-N-T-U-C-H, long E, Suntuke. Suntuke. Suntuke is how... They, they said her name and uh, why we put you as why to go from Greek to English is a mystery of the Latin. <laughs> Sometimes you have to pause, let the hand grenade go off. M-U-S-T-E-R-I-O-N, Musterion, has come into English as mystery, M-Y-S-T-E-R-Y. Because I think of La I think it's because of Latin. It's uh, one of my most hated things about going from Greek to English. Because you hear this name, the girl's name is Suntuke, and you think it's Sintiki, Sintiki. No, no. 
E almost never says E in Greek, if ever. It'd be A, Suntuke, or Suntuke. Anyway, that's the girl's name. You're like, why are you harping on the way they pronounce their names? I don't know. Do you care about how people pronounce your name? You're going to meet her. Don't go up and say, oh, are you, Euodia? That, that name sounds like a good smell. <laughs> Euodia. Euodia. Euodia would be how you lead all those vowels in the beginning of her name. Euodia. Anyway, so um, if any of your names or anybody listening, if your name is Euodia or Sintiki, I apologize because they've, you know, we've, we've uh, ruined these names from Greek into English. And um, what, what really I think would catch us all by surprise is if we heard biblical Greek spoken in the Mediterranean world in, in, in its time, if we could get, you know, get in the time machine, not go back to 1955, but go back to 55, you know, like that would be awesome. And, uh, and go, go peek in on what Matthew's writing. If we heard these people speak Greek, it would sound very different than we think of Greek culture, I think. It would sound very Mediterranean to us. Very, um, I think it would be not, hear what I'm trying to say. I think it would sound as foreign to us as if we hear Hebrew read, sounds foreign to us. Because we tend to think we come from the West and the Greek has the same alphabet almost as the English and stuff. But it's, it, it, it's very different. Anyway. I encourage these ladies, the same thing, to think, phroneo, in the Lord, or to set their minds. Their problem is that they're not doing this. And the solution to the falling out between the women is to think the same thing in the Lord. This lady, who has offended me, however has a resurrection body coming to her because Jesus Christ is her savior. So she's my sister in Christ. We are fellow citizens of the coming kingdom and we are in the royal family of God together. And whatever offense she has against me is nothing compared to my offense daily against God. And so because of the forgiveness extended to me for fellowship with God, I will in advance extend forgiveness to her and I will become a person with a long fuse and my toes will recede so that I'm always out there in the aisle waiting to get stepped on. And I will look for opportunities to forgive and overlook and disregard so that I'm not counting a wrong suffered. And I'll think the same thing in the Lord. That is the solution to the differences that cause these problems, these fallings out. And you have to basically just say, God is going to handle it. I let it go. Forgiveness is release in the new Testament. It doesn't mean I forget what happened. That's crazy. It means I let it go. I'm not counting it. So I'm not counting a wrong suffered. And that is the solution to whatever this problem is. And this is God's design for the, for the text. He doesn't tell us what the problem was. He tells us what the solution is. Insert problem here. This is, this is the solvent that'll dissolve it. This is the acid that will remove this problem. Let it go. Think the same thing in the Lord. Go back to the Lord. With the kids at camp, I've told you this before, but I think it's helpful. I, I train, when I get an opportunity, our counselors for Camp Arete, that they're going to encounter, and we always want young people as counselors, they're going to encounter real life problems that the parents at home are racking their brains. The 30s and 40 year old believers in our churches are struggling with these kids with their problems. They're really, some of them are, are, are um, stumped on what to do about whatever the thing is. And the problems kind of start surfacing at camp. You remove the electronics and you, uh, you have fun things and be in the word together for a couple of days. Problems start coming out where they, they want help with whatever on about Wednesday. <laughs> that's how, that's the magic of camp. So I'm telling the counselors, when I get an opportunity to encourage them, I give them the illustration from baseball. You're going to get problems that you don't know the answers to specifically and necessarily. You're going to have conflicts that happens on uh, Tuesday or Wednesday, maybe Thursday, you get conflicts between people that are in a close quarters together and they're, they're sleep deprived because they're staying up late and we're trying to get them to go to sleep. And, and there, there's, a, there's a conflict that develops and you're going to have to manage these conflicts and whatever the hard thing that's thrown to you, you need to understand who's in charge of this. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We're serving Him in everything that we do. Believers, hear this because you're all uh, being equipped. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 and 13 says that you need to be equipped for the ministry of service. That's what we're doing right now. Think of baseball. Who's throwing the ball? Jesus. You are up to bat, as it were, to try to deal with whatever you catch in your life. Jesus Christ is working in your life to develop you and bring forth your character through all kinds of experiences, including the rough stuff. So you're a counselor. So you're someone coming alongside to encourage a fellow believer that may need help, that lacks perspective, that may be not as far along as you are. That's easy to find in the area in which you live. What are you going to do? Well, you are going to hear them out and you're going to take that ball and you're going to throw it back to the Lord. See, the play stops in baseball when the ball returns to the pitcher. That's the first thing the infielders learn. Get the ball back to the pitcher after you try to make your play. Get the outs, but to get, get the ball back to the pitcher because the game is still live and people are still running bases until it goes back to the pitcher. Then they're stealing bases, right? Get the ball back to the pitcher. Jesus Christ is in charge. You bring it back to him. It's about him. Does this problem stack up to the importance of the cross? Does this offense that I've, I've, I've suffered from this person stack up next to my offenses of God, just guilty of today where I'm arrogant or selfish or, or in this case, self-righteous, whatever the sin is? Of course not. You get back to the Lord Jesus Christ. Bring it back to him. I don't know what to solve, but let's talk about the Lord. That's the solution. And that's always the answer. And I don't mean it in a pat way that we're not thinking about him. I mean, verses 19 and 20, our citizenship is in heaven. We're waiting for Christ eagerly for our savior. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to give us our resurrection body. So these ladies need to get back to the Lord. They need to get back in their thinking about one another to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a big problem in Philippi. Everyone hearing the letter from the Philippians knows about the Donnybrook between these two women. They're prominent women who are important in the ministry of the gospel. We'll hear in verse three, this isn't about babies. This is about maturing believers that are acting like babies because they're not focused on the Lord. They need to think of the same mind in the Lord. What stops us from doing that? We don't feel like it. I feel hurt. I feel betrayed. I feel rejected. I feel, I feel, I feel. And that's awful. And these things hurt. And yes, you feel this way. Put it to the side for just a minute. He doesn't say feel the same thing in the Lord. He says, think the same thing in the Lord. And it's really clear. And that's the solution. Because you know what happens when you as God's image bearer, as, as the awesome thing that you are as a human being, you know what happens when you put your feelings to the side where they belong and you start thinking about the Lord Jesus Christ, you know what he does? I'll show you in just a minute. He stabilizes you. He strengthens you with new feelings. You get peace and it's a feeling, a sense of peace. It comes when you think the right way. A lot of Greek in verse three translates to this. Yes, nah, yes, indeed. I am asking you in this moment by what I'm about to say, Suzugus, Suzugus. Some translations would, would do that. You put an U.S. ending on the end for uh, the dictionary form, Suzugos. But we today, I don't know if your Bible puts it as a personal noun, like a first name, Suzugus, Suzugus. Probably not. We can't find anywhere in Greek this uses a first name. This is like a nickname. This is a noun that he's calling probably Epaphroditus or one of the other leaders. Whoever is the true companion, the Suzugus, the fellow yokeman is the literal person that he's talking about. Whoever he's addressing, he says, there's a third party, me and these ladies. Now that's three parties. There's a fourth party that I need you since I can't be there. I need you to kind of be a Timothy or a Titus or a pastor and work with them on this forgiveness thing. Help them, these who are in the gospel ministry, who in the gospel strove together with me. These women have a record of being on mission and Satan has a distraction pro protocol that is taking them out of the work and it's distracting the church in Philippi. 
And when you put it that way, Pastor, well, we got to get this handled. That's why Paul uh, asks for this help. What's a true companion? Well, it says, fellow yokemen. I would uh, say that's a good looking uh, couple of uh, fellow yokemen. I'm always looking for pictures that don't have copyrights on them. So this is the best I could do with the yoke of oxen. Those are some really interesting oxen. If anybody knows what kind of ox that is, um, keep it to yourself. Anyway, um, no, I'm <laughs> those are not longhorns. I know that. Um, they're not yaks, but anyway, so, but they are pretty cool. This is, um, this is somebody's tractor and um, it's, it's not a painting. It's a photograph. It's not an etching. This is current day. And this, this stick between them is a yoke. And this, as you can see, is a harness that has these two oxen. And uh, they seem like they're resting now, but they're about to, uh, to, to keep walking. And I wanted to get you a picture of oxen because I wanted you to have a sense of the way the Christian life works. He calls this guy fellow yokeman. The picture of that word suzugus is suzuge is, is I am in a harness pulling the Lord's load and you are right next to me in harness pulling the Lord's load. It's a beautiful picture that we have that goes along with everything Paul has said to the Philippians. You're my fellow partakers in the gospel ministry. You're my partners in the work. You're my fellow yoke bearers. We're carrying this load of the Lord together. Do you want to be in harness with Paul? I mean, he's saying y'all are on the team. It's awesome to think of yourself, considering the load that God gave Paul to carry, that you are part of that work. And so, you know, we move from the picture. I don't have a picture of it, but just imagine you move from the picture of a yoke of oxen to a sled dog team. Everybody's pulling together. Now, where do you know of the phrase yoked? And I don't mean Y-O-L-K, where someone threw an egg at you. I mean, Y-O-K-E-D, yoked. Where does that come? Equally yoked. Where have you heard equally yoked before? It's second Corinthians, but you got the right city. And in chapter, come on, single people, chapter six, say another number. No, it's it's second Corinthians chapter six and verse, I believe six, it's either six or verse 14. And I'll be glad to be wrong as long as we get to what's right. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 has the one verse that single evangelical Christians know about getting married. They know that we're not supposed to marry unbelievers because Paul says to be equally yoked, not to be unequally yoked. All right, it's not verse, um, verse 6. Well, where, that's in, I'm in 1 Corinthians, Jerry. You told me 1 Corinthians, so I turned to it. 2 Corinthians 6, come on. There we go. He tells the Corinthians. It is verse 14. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. But if you read it in the King James, it says unequally yoked, I believe, to unbelievers or yoked together to unbelievers. And everybody knows that that's talking about marriage, marriage, which brings us together today. It's talking about marriage, right? Because that's the only thing we know about 2 Corinthians 6. Well, it's interesting. Listen to what he says. Verse 11, our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is open wide. You're not restrained by us, but you are restrained by your own affections. You feel contrary to the gospel and to the mission that I've been sent on for your sake. And I'm fighting your feelings and you need to stop feeling, start listening and thinking so you can feel differently. Is what he's, what he's challenging these very emotional, uh, carnal people. Now in the like exchange, I speak as to children, open wide to us, open, give me a big hug. We love you but you're going to have to change your affections, your feelings, and let God do that as you pay attention to his word. Do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light and darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? It's worthlessness. Or what has a, a believer in common with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God has said, extended quote, second Samuel, or sorry, Exodus 29 and uh, uh, I will dwell in them and walk among them and be their God and they shall be my people. Um, 
Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And what, do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, Isaiah 52. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty, 2 Samuel 7, 14. All these Old Testament quotes to say, don't join with unbelievers. Is there a marriage context here? No, but it's a great application. It's a really good application. Please don't marry unbelievers on the basis of 2 Corinthians 6, 14. But I think it goes beyond unbelievers to contracts. I think it goes beyond, beyond marriage to, to other associations. And be careful with your associations and your commitments. And I've seen it burn you. I've seen it burn you at times. And so um, this is a do not love the world or the things of the world kind of passage, like in 1 John 2. And so, yeah, don't marry an unbeliever. That's, that's like the most critical application of the principle. But the principle is really uh, the Corinthians are of the world instead of just being in the world. They're of the world and they need to separate themselves so that they can minister to the world. And please, please don't take away your application of not marrying an unbeliever. That is certainly to be unequally yoked. But that's your other, uh, one of your other key yoke passages. Boy, do you want to be pulling for the Lord? Yes. Do you want to marry so that you're pulling together? And so, you know, you, you have a, an ox hitched up to uh, a yoke with another ox. And so we pull together and it's a good, easy, you know, work balanced out and everything. You hook an ox up to with a donkey and that is probably hell on earth. And it probably means we won't pull as far or as much probably means we're going to be sore and hurt from the process. And it'll be a horrible waste of opportunity. But what's the point? You got a load to pull. You have work to do. Boy, do I not want to be this guy who's being asked to go intervene between these two women. Y'all can be that guy. Sometimes I have to be that guy. Verse four takes us out of the Donnybrook between the gals. Why did it do that? That was weird. Yeah, and tells you to rejoice. Two words in red, they're the same word. Kairete, sorry, Kairete in Curio Pontate. Pauline Ero Kairete. That is rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. That is a double command Paul gives you. And the key to it is in the middle. Not just the always, but in the Lord. He doesn't say put on a happy face and fake it, fake it until you make it and, and be phony. Have that rosy Christian glow that was glad to have been in this place. And then bless your heart and we go on back home. It is to consider Jesus Christ, to think of him and have enough time and focus on your Savior where you have begun to change in your affections and you are rejoicing in the Lord. It's a command to focus on Christ so that you can rejoice in him. It's shorthand. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Just think about the resurrection and compare the promise of the resurrection to the problem of your health. Compare the promise of the resurrection and the distribution of eternal reward to the problem of your bank account, your savings, your debt, whatever. Put these things in perspective and you will find ample reason to rejoice. This is the section in four through nine of Paul's commands and promises. Let me whet your appetite for what's coming. We have several commands like this that are not burdensome at all. I mean, who wants to be happy? Who wants to rejoice? Now, I know it's popular to, to make this false distinction between happiness and joy and say Americans want to be happy, but we really need to embrace joy. Like it's, that's a word game that theologians are playing with you today. And paper pastors out there, I know they're writing books on it. Happy just means it's a, it's a synonym for joy in English. And you're canceling a great deal of correct statements in English in the church history on happiness when you say we're not seeking to be happy. Yeah, we're seeking happiness, not fun, happiness, but it's in Christ. And it's the same as joy. It just means you become aware and focused on the good news that so dominates your attention that you have cause to celebrate. That is the Christian life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. This is the kind of command we can sink our teeth into. And if you're not there, beloved, ask him, God, I need the joy. 
Where is the joy? Help me have it. I don't have it. I want it. Please ask for the fruit of the spirit. Ask for the Holy Spirit to bear that fruit in your life. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, and the other things that are reflective of love. Love rejoices in the truth. That's verse four. The gentleness of y'all. So I'll say the gentleness which characterizes you. It doesn't say your gentle spirit. It says gentle as an adjective uses a noun. So the gentle, your gentle, your gentleness is how we would do that in English, which characterizes you make it known to all men. I mean, that's another one. That's like easy. Be gentle with people. Now this word gentle, watch what this means specifically. The word, your gentleness, make it known to all men. The gentleness means that you are not insisting on all that you might insist on to have your proper treatment. That's really where this is coming from. It's the opposite of legalism. It's the opposite of insisting on you being having your way and you just let stuff go. It's the, it's kind of an analog to forgiveness. That's the, that's the context. There are other words for the general sense of gentleness, like in, in, you know, the fruit of the spirit. This is talking about how you are, listen to the great word, magnanimous. You are bigger about things and not petty. You let stuff go. And you're the kind of person that's expecting and hoping and praying for the best. You're loving. It's a way of expressing Christian love that has to do with not insisting on all that you might insist on. Well, you said, you said you would be here. Well, I had, I was taken to the emergency room. Well, but you missed your appointment to go to the emergency room. Yeah. But you said, that's a silly example, but, um, for whatever reason, you, you missed it and uh, you forgot, you know, you're just the kind of person that forgets. I just can't be around people like that, that, that forget. I can't be around people that forget. Well, get off the planet because everyone does. See, that, that's the kind of thing we're dealing with is be magnanimous because again, it's the same thing. You've been forgiven a billion. You've, you, you're being asked to forgive a hundred or 10 or 10 cents. Just what is Il, is it Ilsa? Let it go. I, don't know. I haven't seen it. Just heard about it. Okay. Verse six for nothing. Be anxious. Present imperative. I've heard it said that this verse be anxious for nothing means that you're already being anxious or worrying and you need to stop it. Because it's in the present tense, so it means it's ongoing, already ongoing action. And that is a horrible misunderstanding of Greek imperatives. And it cancels the application for most people. Because it isn't saying you're already doing it. It's saying never do it. Now, what color is that imperative mood? Everybody help me. What color is that? Be anxious for nothing. It's in red. And why did I put it in red? How do I know it's a command? Because David Rosalind wants it to be a command. No, I struggle with this all the time. Why do I know this is a command of the Apostle Paul? Because it's in the imperative mood. Because that's how he wrote it. And it's in a context of imperative. Well, second person present can be imperative or, or, or indicative. Yeah, but it's in a context of constant commands. Now, this command comes with a promise. Do you know the promise? There's two commands and one promise. Verse 6 has the two commands. Verse 7 has the promise. And we're going to close in just a second. Be anxious for nothing, but in all things, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, your requests, present imperative, go on or be making them known to God. Meaning, the portrayal of the action of not worrying and bringing your request, the, the idea is ongoing action. You're taken internally into the action. Doesn't mean it's already happening. It means you're supposed to con continue doing this. So you're continuing to avoid worry, anxiety, and you're continuing to make your request known to God. And what's the promise? There's no command here. It's just a promise. If you'll do what verse six says, believers, beloved, if you'll do what verse six says, the apostle Paul tells you as a promise what God will do. And this is what I've been saying to you about affections and feelings. Put your worry to the side, reject it. It's a sin. He says not to do it. I mean, it's, it's, it's a disobedience to God when he says, don't do this. 
In other words, it's a destruction of your soul and he loves you. He doesn't want you to be destroyed. He wants you to be stabilized and trust him. So hold yourself accountable. When I do this thing that he says not to do, stop it, isolate it. That's a problem. This takes some reflection. This takes some honesty, some self-examination. If you're not in a habit of, of being this way, hey, that's part of growing up spiritually. Look at yourself as you are. I'm a worried person. Well, you need to take it to God. But here's the thing. He says, don't do that, but instead make your request known to him with thanksgiving. And the promise is that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Beloved, let me leave you on this note. I want you to have that. I want you to walk in his perfect peace. I want that to be your experience every day. That's what I want for you. And I was taught to want that by the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. I didn't know that that's something you needed. I wouldn't have thought of it. I didn't know to prioritize it, but it is absolutely God's will in Christ Jesus for you to enjoy the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension. Well, how do we kind of understand? It says it surpasses comprehension or understanding. It's just something he gives you. That's what it means. It means it surpasses your ability. Well, let me reason this through. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Same word, Irene, and the other things. This is what I want for you on the daily. How do you get it? What is the command that carries a promise? It's a cause and effect. Try it out. This to me is the emergency the emergency lever, you've got to pull it when you need that peace. And you know when you need the peace because you are on the panic button. And we all go there. And other Christians that aren't there see you there and they're like, what's wrong with that guy? Chill out. What a spaz. <laughs> Don't you know the Lord's in control? Yes, I know he's in control. <laughs> I want this for you. I want you to enjoy God's peace daily, despite, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the challenges you're facing. But it's all inside. It's not the circumstance changes. It's that you don't worry about it. It's how you respond to the problem. In other words, I could preach verses six and seven for 15 or 16 hours. And believe me, believe it or not, I have at least 15 or 16 more hours of talking about these things to you to, to get us through Philippians. We're not limited by my preparation. We're limited by the time. Beloved, this is God's will for you to enjoy that peace. And how do I get it? I choose to avoid, to reject worry. And in all things, for nothing be anxious, but in all things, it's universals. I'm going to bring prayer. That's talking to God. And I'm going to bring petition. That's urgent, specific request. That's what petition means. It means I'm making specific requests. Prayer means I'm talking to God. That's the general word. This word for um, uh, desis, this, this is to make my request in a specific focused thing. It's the thing you're worried about. You're supposed to take it to him. And then the part we forget, the ground wire that we always forget to hook up that makes the thing not work. Save me. Well, save me from this hardship that I'm, that I'm in needs to be tempered with. And thank you for saving me in the bigger picture. You bring your thanksgiving. Oh, I can't thank God right now. I'm in a hard, hard situation. That's the problem. You're not going to get peace until you remember what am I even thankful for? Bring the thanksgiving through the hardship as you bring the request and you make these requests known to God. Why believers do people not do that? I'm not going to give all 16 hours. I'm just, you know, why do people not make it known? Why don't we? Because we have this arrogant thing that disregards God's word and says, I kind of know what he means. And, you know, he already knows. It doesn't say make it known to him because he doesn't know. It's a way in Greek of saying, tell him. And that's very important. And I don't know why. And this is where I live. I don't know why he says you need to tell the omniscient one what you're going through. He just says, tell him. And I'm certain that you need to tell him because he says to. 
So you're, if you're in that sophomoric phase, sophomore phase, new, you know, kind of a growing Christian where you're like, God already knows. And I know about God's omniscience, so I don't really need to tell him. He knows what I'm dealing. God, you know, God, God knows what. If you go there, then you're going to disobey what Paul says. And you need to grow up a little bit and therefore humble yourself and say, you can even say it this way, Father, I know you know this, but I need help. And thank you for your help. And thank you for your promise. Give me that peace you promised. That's what I want. I know I need it. That's where mine go as I grow. I'm asking for, give me that peace. I need it. I need stability so I can handle this. As you grow, you better, you, you'll know better what you need. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. We dedicate the closing moments as always to anyone who may be in the hearing of my voice without Christ, without hope, without eternal life. We dedicate these moments so that you can hear clearly the words of life. There are lots of ways people present this message of life, and some of them miss the mark by telling you that you need to do something besides believing or trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior. The problem with that, any message that has any work for you, is that it makes you think you can do something about your sin or about God's righteousness. As a sinner, no matter what you do to try to atone for or even halt your own sins, you're going to come up short because you're dealing with infinite, perfect righteousness. That's God and that's the standard. And unless you have that, you're not going to measure up. And that's why sin means missing the mark. What you need as a sinner to do about your sin is to trust in Jesus Christ as your only hope. You see, we are in a helpless pit and there is no way out. The water level is rising. We are soon going to drown and there is no solution except one. It is the rope of salvation that God lowers down and says, grab onto this, I'll save you. And that is the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus died for your sins on the cross so that you could have eternal life with him. And the way you get it is you grab hold of that rope, you trust in Jesus Christ as your savior. There is no work. There is no agonizing over your sin. There is no doing better. There is no giving. There is nothing you can do to save yourself, to add to the perfect salvation of Jesus Christ. It is only by grace, God's grace, God's free gift through faith. That's what you do. I trust in Jesus Christ as my savior. You can say in your heart to God right now, God, my father, I'm trusting in your son. And the moment you trust in Jesus Christ as your savior, as with the house of Cornelius, the very instant you trust in Jesus Christ as your savior is the very instant of your new birth of eternal life, of eternal inheritance in Christ. Our Father, we thank you for your Son, for our privilege to proclaim his death and to meditate on these wonderful truths, these wonderful promises and their commands. Father, let us constantly have recourse to recall them to mind, to reread them, to reflect on them, to be stabilized by your so great salvation, by your wonderful truth. Don't let us be grumblers and complainers don't let us look at this word and then walk away as though we haven't seen who we are let us constantly come back to your son in our occupation with christ we pray in jesus name amen